Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. Enjoy today's message. May you experience the presence of our Father and may you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. Okay. And I wanted to just continue a little bit around this idea of faith. The faith of our works is there, the faith with works changes the world, transforms it. Now I want us to look at the life of the next couple of weeks. Sort of, I was a little bit ambitious in my planning and realized there's just too much to share from his entire life for us to be able to do it very well. Again, Ezekiah is continuing, he's almost dead, and God gave him to Nehemiah. And we're going to look at Nehemiah over the next couple of weeks, for today, just at the first three chapters of the book of Nehemiah. And here we have somebody who is such an example of faith. We're going to see how to look in his life and learn some from that, hopefully. In our leadership courses and some of the leadership programs that we present, this book, this story specifically, that the character of Nehemiah is sort of a textbook example of biblical leadership. That as we present our courses, so much, obviously, apart from Jesus, obviously the clinical, the probably the next best leadership account that we have in Scripture is the story of. Yeah. This man who ticks all of the leadership boxes, it's sort of all contained in here, and we're going to look a little bit at the life of Nehemiah from that place. And so we'll start with a good place to start with, in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, he says, These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Nehemiah. In the late autumn, the month of Tessian, the 20th year old, king of the Zephyr's reign, I was at the fortress. Of Susan. And only one of my brothers came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. Judah is obviously the province in which Jerusalem is contained. And he's obeyed that night, he's been carried away, and we can see that the story starts with a little something similar to Rockland. That there were a people who had been carried away in captivity. They were forced to live a life that they didn't want to live in a way they didn't want to live in a place that they hadn't wanted to live. 
And some of them, just a small number, have returned to their homeland, to Jerusalem. Maybe a little bit like us, this morning, I think you're like, just some of us, a small number, have returned to a familiar place. And so they return there, they come to Nehemiah, he asks, tell me how we go to Jerusalem. They just arrived the Jews, and I asked them about the Jews who returned there and how things were growing in Jerusalem. And they said to me, things are not going well for those who returned to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And the city is not what it used to be. But not only is it not what it used to be in the sense that it's been neglected, it is now a health hazard and it is dangerous to them. There is no protection. The walls were only to look nice and The walls were there to protect the inhabitants. And anybody could at any stage get paid, could come plunder, could come and steal. The people of Jerusalem were, in a sense, living in perpetual They were aware that they were surrounded by people who were not benevolent towards them, people who were looking for every opportunity to that means these people who have turned back to Jerusalem. So the message comes to them, the message is things are not going well. When he heard this, when I heard this, I sat down. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed. And right here we see that the birth we see here somebody who has something, a burden which is impressed upon his heart. Here he is, Nehemiah is going about his life, he hears about something that should not be. Something that is not the way that he thinks it should be, that is not the way that he believes it should be. He becomes aware of something that needs to be changed. And I love this response. Step one is when I heard this, I sat down. It always touched him emotionally. He allowed the circumstances that he became aware of to touch him emotionally. He wasn't hardened in his heart towards the circumstances to which he became aware. In fact, for days, I'm more. And that for many of us is easy to do when we become emotional about something. But he didn't just do it. He fasted. He started at step one of saying, God, this thing is not right and the way to solve it, God, is to start in prayer. To start, God, by looking to you. To start, God, by focusing on you. To start, God, by and I love that he doesn't just pray. There's fasting as well. Because he's realizing he wants to step away from his own views of it. He wants to begin to see this situation. And so I'm speaking, I know, this morning as well to many of us who are leaders, many of us who have a capacity to change and to bring about change, to many of us who perhaps right now, or maybe today, later today, or the week, the week, the months to come. At some stage, there can be a burden that moves upon your heart. 
I actually missed this until I started sort of studying this in preparation for the message here. But he starts this in late autumn, in the months of, of Kislev, in the 20th years of King Artaxerxes, and sort of the historians who study these things, this is all historically verifiable. You can take this story from Nehemiah. You don't need the Bible to have the story. Even if we were to lose every account of the Bible, there would still be a number of other archaeological and um, literature references that we can refer to to tell us that the story is true. And so the dates, they've been cross-referenced, that we know exactly when this was. And he doesn't give sort of the, the day of the month that he was sort of moved upon his heart, but he was in autumn, in the month of Kislev, which would have been sort of mid-November to mid-December on our calendar of that year. So it's right at the end of the year, and He begins, so late autumn, probably then beginning of November, must have been, sorry, because it's autumn in Northern Hemisphere. No, something is totally confused here. Boom a second, no. I got the dates. Anyway, the point we'll get to in a moment. I'll check up the dates and fix that for us last week. I didn't write them down here. I've just confused myself. But he goes and, and he's praying and, and he's fasting, and I want us to... Read just the last bit of the prayer that he prays in, in verse 11 of chapter 1. Oh Lord, please hear my prayer. It's a great prayer to pray. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today, he prays. Grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it in his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. And the gears have just kicked in. November here is spring for us. So in the northern hemisphere, it is autumn. So it is late autumn, and my date isn't totally confused. Okay. Beginning of November, this whole starts. He prays this prayer. He says, today. In those days, he was working for the king. He was the king's cupbearer. He had a lot of face time with the king. And so he's praying, God, there is a way, if I could sort of paraphrase his words a bit, God, there is a way in which you can change the situation. God, all you need to do is change the king's heart. Simple prayer. And so chapter 2, verse 1, early the following spring. Six months later, as a matter of fact, the calendar here, in the month of Nisan during the 20th year, now we are talking about May, April. In, in that time there we're at. So we've jumped from November, and sometimes I, I think we just need to hear this again, that everything with God doesn't happen overnight. That sometimes we become aware of a situation 
that needs changing, just like Nehemiah did here. And he prayed, God, I want to change this today. And God says, I'm hearing your prayer today, but we're not going to change it today. And God seems to be okay with that. There is something beautiful about patience. James chapter 1 tells us that. Count it all joy when you fall into various troubles. Why should we count the joy? Because it's an opportunity for you to develop patience. Patience often for us is a bit like experience. Now, experience isn't, the, isn't something that you have until after you've needed it. Now we get experience doesn't only come from when it goes right. The most of the experience we pick up is where it went wrong. And if only I had this experience beforehand. So experience we only have after we've needed it most of the time. And patience often is the same. Patience is developed by struggling. And then he carries on to say, because patience develops endurance. And I'm paraphrasing here, but it comes down to this. And when you have endurance, you have everything. When we leave that, we talk about it a lot. You know, we're in this microwave generation. We're in this, you know, if my Uber is three minutes late, or even worse, my Uber Eats is three minutes late. It needed to happen already. And this idea of just patience and slowing down. It's one of the reasons I so love these last two songs we just sang, just learning that discipline of waiting. Of waiting. I see Nehemiah has got this emotionally charged thing. It's his people. It's his family. It's kind of the people that, that they love, the city he loves. They've gone back to Jerusalem, and it's not going well with them. And he's weeping about it. He's mourning about it. He's fasting about it. He's praying about it. He's saying, God, bring about a changing I'm sure in his prayer he's hearing God saying, I'm going to change this. But he's also hearing, not yet. Not yet. And sometimes for us in our prayer, the not yet is the hardest answer. The yes and the no we can live with, but the not yet is the hardest to deal with. And so early the following spring, in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of the king's reign, I was serving the king, his wife. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. Six months later, this thing is still emotionally weighing him down. And I read here that he's not trying to manipulate the king. Because if he'd been trying to manipulate the king, he wouldn't have taken so long to do it. But also his response here, because the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. This thing really got to the heart of Nehemiah. Then I was terrified. Because apparently you don't look bad in, and sad in the king's presence. You make sure that when you walk into the king's presence, you're in a good mood. Even if you have to fake it, if you want to stay alive, if you want to stay in the court, if you want to stay in your position, you make sure you walk in there with a smile. Some of us need to learn that discipline of walking into situations with a smile, of finding ways in which to allow our mourning to not interfere with the other tasks that God has called us to. And this day, the prayer that he prayed six months earlier is answered. 
and the prayer I believe that he has been praying continuously. He was terrified, but he replied, Long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. The king asked, well, how can I help you? Isn't this the prayer that he prayed and has been praying? God, you can change the situation by doing something in the king's heart. Isn't it amazing how, and for me just personally, this is, is one of the hardest things to wrestle with, that God, I can see A, B, or C, this thing that's stirring in my heart, can happen so easily, but I'm dependent on somebody else. God, but somebody else has to. God, but you have to get somebody else to take a step before I can take a step. God, I'm ready to go. We're going to see this in a moment. God, I've got the plan. You know, those are the worst situations. When I'm ready, I feel I'm ready. Everything is ready. God is like, Philip, you're not even close to ready. But I think I am. But I'm waiting for somebody else. You can get somebody else to get that move on. And what I love that we learn here from Nehemiah, something that he made a peace with, he wasn't waiting for the king. He was waiting for God. He wasn't waiting for the king. He was waiting for God to do what God needed to do in the king's life. He was waiting here for you, as we sang earlier. And then the king asked him, what can I do to help you? And kind of immediately... He realizes this is the moment that he needs to seize. You see, he has it so much of the leadership. He gets his timing spot on. He's patient in the build-up. And the timing right at the beginning is so correct. He says with a prayer, kind of he's praying while he's speaking. Anyone ever been in those situations? You know, here is the gap. I've got to use it right now. And I somehow need to speak to God while I'm speaking to this king as well. And he's sort of in this moment. He's praying to the God of heaven. And then he replies, if it please the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king, with a queen sitting beside him, asked him, How long will you be gone? When will you return? After I told him how long I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. We see here favor towards Nehemiah. This thing in his heart, he can now step out and begin to do that which has been burning in his heart. But then watch this. I also said to the king. You see, Nehemiah in the nights, he's been mourning, he's been crying, he's been praying, and he's been planning. Nehemiah knows that there is a day going to come, and as he's praying where he believes God is going to allow me to do this, but then I need to have a plan. Then I need to know what this thing is going to look like. Because watch immediately what he does when the king says, and he takes the gap, and he, okay, God, king, thank you that I can go, but this is what it's going to take. So I also said to the king, if it please the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing, to let me, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. Give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber because I need it to make the beams for the gates, for the temple fortress, which is an important part of the city, for the city walls and for a house for myself. You see, he knows exactly what he's going to do when the king says, now is the time to do it. He hasn't just been sitting there. He's been waiting on God 
but he's been waiting on God actively. What do I mean by that? He hasn't been stepping out and doing things in the flesh, but he has been preparing. He's been praying, he's been asking God, and he's been thinking. Okay, so we're going to go and build a city. What does it mean to rebuild a city? What does it take to rebuild a city? What do I need to rebuild the city? He's working on a plan. He's thinking, how am I going to do it? If God says yes, what am I going to do? And so often working with leaders, this is a, a step that we miss. We're praying and we're, maybe we're getting it right. We're waiting on God and then God says go and then we're like, okay, what now? Okay, what, where do I go from here? How do I step out from here? And Nehemiah's been doing the behind the scenes. He's been planning, he's been preparing, he's been praying. He's been taking care of the things in the natural that he can take care of. And when the moment come to, came to speak to the king, he knew exactly what he needed from the king. Can you imagine if he had to come back the next day or a week or two weeks later and knock on the king's door and say, Oh, king, by the way, I need A, B, and C. Probably wouldn't have gone so well. He was ready in the moment when God had turned on the king's heart to move to action. The king says, go. And so I arrived in Jerusalem, still in chapter 2, verse 11 here this time. And three days later, so he arrives in Jerusalem, and for three days he doesn't really do anything. Three days later, I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack animals with us except the donkey I was riding. After dark, I went out through the valley gate, past the jackal's well and over the dung gate to inspect the broken walls and the burnt gates. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but my donkey couldn't get through the rubble. So though it was still dark, I went up the Kidron Valley instead, inspecting the wall before I turned back and entered again at the valley gate. What is he doing here? He's making sure that his plan is going to work. He's inspecting what needs to be done. He has been very far away in a different land, in a different city, and he's been praying and he's been thinking and he's been planning, but he hasn't been able to do a site inspection. And so he comes and he doesn't come into the city with big fanfare. Obviously, he comes in and you need to just get into the space a little bit. He comes to Jerusalem, where at this stage is not a massive city, and he comes as a messenger of the king. He had an entourage from the king. People would have known that this guy's in town. He didn't kind of manage to slip in and stay in a safe house hidden with no one is seeing. But he also comes biting his tongue. And he comes not with his big plan, not with his big vision. He doesn't come walking in, we're going to see now, hey guys, I'm here to save the city. He doesn't come in that way. He comes quietly, he comes humbly, and then he doesn't tell anybody his plan. And he goes and he, he looks around and he, he continues with his preparatory work. He goes and sees what is actually the situation. I've heard reports, I've been listening, because it's been six months, I'm really sure he had been asking other people who had been coming from Judea to what, how is it going, what's going on in the city, as he figured out more and more, probably asking more and more detailed questions. But now he actually has eyes on. 
And he does a survey. He says, is my plan going to work? Do we have what it is going to take? And so by himself, just with a few people in secret, he goes and does his inspection. Verse 16, the city officials did not know I had been out there or what I was doing, for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. Maybe that's a word here for some of us, that we have these little dreams and the plans in our heart, and the first thing we do is we post them on Twitter and Facebook and tell the world. We don't see that with him. We don't see that in his relationship with the king, and we don't see that as he comes to Jerusalem. He plays his cards close to his chest. He realizes this is an emotive issue. He doesn't come making these big promises and these big pronunciations, alienating a bunch of people in the process. Just look what he does. He doesn't tell them. I had not spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. But now, I say to them, you know very well what trouble, and I love this word that he uses right there, we. Right from the start, he realizes, I'm not here to fix it. Right from the start, he also allows the trouble to become his trouble. And he speaks to them, he says, hey guys, I am here with you. I am not here above you to come and speak down to you guys. I am here with you. Can we make this an aspect? You know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. And he comes to them humbly but with a plan. He comes to them and he says, hey guys, why don't all of us do this together and we can bring about a significant change to our city. And I've got a plan. I've been thinking and praying about this. I've already spoken to the king. I already have all of the resources ready. This isn't in the text. I might be reading this into the text, but if I look at the life of Nehemiah, the way he conducts himself, because the conversation here is then they replied at once. Yes, it's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. I am convinced if they had said, no, we don't want to. I'm convinced Nehemiah would have stepped back. I am convinced he wouldn't have strong-armed it through. I'm not sure he would have gone back to the king. Maybe he would have taken time. He would have prayed. He would have individually spoken to some of the people. He might have found a way kind of to make it work if it didn't work initially. But he wouldn't have strong-armed it. He wouldn't have been, well, stuff you, I'm doing this anyway. He realized that in order to build, there were other people who needed to be involved. Other people who needed to be on board with him. And so after he's done all of his homework, he gets the different role players together. And he says, hey guys, I have a plan for us to change something. I have a plan for us to rebuild. I have a plan for us to, the city can be so much better. Let's take hands. Let us do this together. 
And obviously God had been moving and working in their heart again, and they say, yes, let's do it. Let's rebuild it. And in the end of chapter 2 from verse 19, when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, who were the Arab, and these were other leaders of surrounding cities, heard of a plan, they scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king? They asked. I replied, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We, his servants, will start rebuilding this wall, but you have no share, legal right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. And I love how he deals with opposition. Some of the later chapters, as the opposition gets more and more, he just, you know, some of the younger people we know here, he blue ticks them. He just ignores them. He doesn't pay any attention to them. He's like, you guys actually don't have a reason to speak to us. So we're going to rebuild this. And he's respectful in his communication to them, but at the same time, he doesn't pay them much. Heat. He doesn't allow the naysayers to come against what he knows God wants to do. And then we're not going to read the whole chapter 3 because the whole of chapter 3 is so beautiful. It's this guy went and built. And as he was building, next to him, this guy was building. And then next to him, the next guy was building. And this is what he was building. And this is how he made it special. And so it carries on all around the city. And it says where everybody was building. And everyone was building a different part. Different attention and different role. And so as we're looking at the life of Nehemiah, some things we can learn from him, so many leadership principles there are a couple of things here. The first one is we see him as a type of Jesus. Jesus with the Father. Looking at a city that is broken, defenseless, falling apart. That it is not going well. He says, let me go. And let me make right what needs to be made right. Let me go and fix it. And isn't that exactly how Jesus came from heaven to earth? Like Nehemiah coming from the king to Jerusalem. We see this beautiful example of the gospel expressed to us right there. We see Jesus being the one who would come and redeem and make right everything. But we also see a man in Nehemiah's case of faith. Somebody who could hold on to Jesus and who could step out in what Jesus had called him. And I said this last time, I love this quote, I try and say it often. Whatever God has called you to do, do it as if God had called you to do it. And here we see somebody with a burden, with a passion from God. And it wasn't just, oh, that wasn't a nice situation. That it was a conversation that upset him for months. Maybe some of us need to hear that as well. That you don't need to action every situation that upsets you. The burdens are the one that stay. That next week, next month, I'm still concerned by this thing. And some of us already have things stirring on your hearts. And we can learn here from Nehemiah, we can learn how are we praying into that? How are we, if necessary, mourning? How are we seeking God's face around us? How are we preparing? How are we planning? Maybe God never says yes. And then I've got this plan that's never going to be action. But maybe he does. And then I'm ready for when God says yes. 
Who are the people that I'm waiting on? I'm waiting. And change my view to say, God, I'm not waiting on the person. I'm not waiting on the city council. I'm not waiting on my CEO. I'm not waiting on the project leader. I'm not waiting on my spouse. I'm not, God, I'm waiting on you. God, that which needs to happen from them will happen when you cause it to be so, God. So, God, I'm going to pray different. I'm going to think different. God, my waiting is not waiting for them. It's waiting on you. God, here are all the plans. Son, you're not ready yet. Plan more. But God, whenever you're ready, would you turn that person's heart? And God, may I be ready when you are ready. We learn this from him. We learn that he goes in humbly. We learn that he doesn't come in with guns blazing, ready to fix the problem. Don't we see that with Jesus coming to earth? For the first 30 years, what does Jesus do? He keeps his mouth shut. For 30 years, he is not telling anybody what to do. For 30 years, he is learning. Not that he was God who needed to learn, but he's demonstrating a measure of respect. Isn't that a crazy thought? That God respected you and me in our sinfulness so much that he didn't, as a two-year-old, solve all of our problems. But he came and he was willing to love and to be loved and to allow us to learn to love him. Nehemiah does that when he comes and he serves. And then he goes to the leaders. I love that. And you know just some of our social media causes and for our younger people around us? Everywhere in Scripture where we see God moving, we always see him as a reformer and never as a revolutionary. Jesus himself, when he comes, he says, I did not come to throw out the law, I came to fulfill the law. I didn't come to throw out the synagogue and everything that you guys are doing. I came to make it right. I came to work with the leaders as much as is possible, not to kind of bring about this new government, a new revolution. You know, our working, if it's God-inspired, will always take that form. God-inspired will never stand up and cast out and throw out. He starts by working on the inside. Nehemiah does that as well. He doesn't arrive there and say, all of you other leaders are useless, I've got a better way. No, he engages them. He honors them. He says, God has placed leaders in here. I want to work with those leaders. I want to support you guys in God's mandate for you. He has respect for God's calling upon their lives as much as he has respect for God's calling upon his life. He has respect for the fact that God works through other people too and not just through me. God works in other ways and not just in my way. So he walks into the situation. He gets them together. He submits his plan to them. And then we see the hand of God upon them and says, yes, let's do this. And then together, they mobilize that whole community to action. Many of us today are Nehemiahs whom God is wanting to send to a variety of different places to go and fix, to make right. As we do that, let's carry some of the lessons from Nehemiah. Some of us are Nehemiahs and we've been praying for a week, a month, a year, a decade about this thing. Keep praying. 
at some stage, if it's a God thing, He is open to open the door and He will say no. For Jesus, it was 30 years of waiting. For Moses, when we looked at Moses' life, it was 40 years being raised as an Egyptian and then 40 years in the desert. Only at the age of 80 did he start doing what God had planned for him to do. So we can carry on. Joseph, as Yaku spoke to us about, Abraham was about a decade after the promise of a kid till when he got the kid. It might even have been two decades. It was a long time that he had to wait. Let's not give up on those plans. Moses, as an 80-year-old man, some of us need to hear this, Moses started walking in God's purpose for his life when he was 80 years old. That's when he started. we too quick sometimes. We want to write off the 80-year-olds. Can you imagine if the people of Israel had written off Moses at 80? 90, 100, 110, you were 120. He handed over to Joshua. It's never too late to start. And then there will be opposition. There is going to be opposition if you're doing something from God. Don't kick against it. Don't be upset by it. Don't let it emotionally take your energy and your time. Bring it before God. God says be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, bring those prayers before God. There's going to be opposition. Not everyone is going to like what you're doing. We need to make a peace with that. As Christians, we need to find a way to have soft hearts and thick skins. Hearts that always remain loving, but skins that can, you know, people say weird things, unnecessary things. They want to get involved in what we know God's wanting us to do. You can't do it, don't do it. And we know God's in it. We know God's called the other leaders kind of, the opposition here isn't coming from the people who need to be part of the project. The opposition is coming from outside. And he sees it as that. So let's be leaders who are willing to lead. In that way, we've just started. I mean, this is just the first two chapters of the book. There is so much that we learn from Nehemiah when it comes to leadership. And I'm not even sort of getting into the leadership theory. I'm just wanting us to just look at some scriptural thoughts here. And then at the same time, as I do that, perhaps I'm a little bit of Nehemiah coming to us and saying, you know, God wants to rebuild His church. Not just this part of the church, but His church. His church in the city, His church in the nations. And every one of us, I love how Nehemiah shows that everyone they build in, he didn't expect everyone to build the same thing at the same time in the same way. We're all going to build differently. But I want to put that invitation out. Come and build. Perhaps while you're waiting on God for that thing that's pressing on your heart, find somewhere else where you can build in the meantime. Find somewhere else where you can contribute, where you can say, God, this gift that I do have, I can just, you know, I can't, I don't know, this woodworking thing, I can't put the beams for the temple gates but I can put one brick upon another. I can carry the brick there. I can go and fetch the sand that we need to make the cement or whatever they used in that time to keep the bricks in the right place. I've got something that I've got that I can contribute that goes for us as a church and that goes for broader for the kingdom. Every one of us, God wants to use you to bring His kingdom to pass. The ashes are going to pass out the elements of communion 
And as we do that, we're going to thank God that Jesus came to be our new Himalayan, to come and restore, to come and make whole, to come and redeem. We thank Him for that. But also a way that He sends us as Nehemiahs to different situations. And also that we get to be part of building. There are places where we're going to get to lead. And you know, Nehemiah, you know, if you read the story, there's no ways this is the first time he's leading. There's just too much wisdom in his leadership methodology for him for it to be the first time. He's learned to lead when he was serving in the king's court, or in the king's court. Yes, he was the cupbearer. That was a senior position. He would have been at other people that he was leading in that position. He would have had a team of people around him. He comes to Jerusalem. He comes with a team of people from the king. Learn to lead by serving. Learn to lead by being part of teams, by serving under other leaders, by learning how they lead. And that can practically find expression just practically here. Just some of us have asked, we are back here for the foreseeable future, but it's not because we're not looking for something else. We're waiting on God for our own place, actively. So we're praying and we're planning and we're getting the finances together and we're looking at some options and we're speaking to estate agents and all of those things that one needs to do and looking at site development plans and you know all of the things that the architects and the engineers and those guys need to figure out. But also realize the two things involved. We need to have faith with feet. We need to wait on God, but we also need to be prepared. And just so you guys know, I've heard some people ask us, are we moving back here? Does that mean we're leaving the plan for our own venue? No, we're not leaving the plan for our own venue. That's very much still there. But in the meantime, we are. And whether that meantime is a week, which would be the fastest transaction in the history of commercial property, or whether it is a couple of months or even a couple of years, that's in God's hands. We're doing what we believe we can and should be doing. Um, but do continue to pray with us. Fast with us when we fast. Uh, trust God that He's going to, at the right stage, release the right property to us. But in the meantime, we have this venue, which is really great and has served us fantastically well for the best part of you know, more than the last decade, 13 years or something. And we'll continue to preach and minister here as much as we are able. Um, I got distracted, but anyway, we need to finish off and, and pray. I'm going to ask if you have received the element, both elements of the communion, if you can stand with me, if you're still waiting for something, you can just remain seated. I'm going to pray together. I'm going to just pray a short prayer, and then I'm going to give you a time, just in your own words, to pray. Because I know that some of us here, there are burdens that God has been and is placing upon our hearts. And I want to give you a bit of time just to bring that burden before God. I also want to give you a bit of time for those of us where God is saying that be part of the team that builds, that serves, just in front of their own gate. You do the little bit that you can do now while you're waiting for the other thing. Just as you have time between you and God, I'm going to give you a moment to just pray into that and around that. And then we'll take the elements of the communion together. Jesus, this morning, God, I'm so thankful, just the church, that we get together 
Lord, and as if you've taught us over the last year and a bit, church isn't a building. Church isn't this which we're doing today. Church is us. Church is where two or three gather in your name. Church is also in homes, Lord, in communities and in workplaces, Lord. Church in a modern context is in telephones and computers when we pick up and we phone one another, Lord God, and we have fellowship together. Church is in that communication. Church is in that relationship with them. We just have to find one expression of it as we gather here together. God, I want to thank you for that. Thank you that we can gather. Thank you for this venue. Thank you for this church building thing. Thank you, God, for the way you have sustained us in the last year, Lord, as migrants. Different venues, different places. Thank you for every new person that you've even added in that time, Jesus. Because, Jesus, thank you that you have come to be the Nehemiah that rebuilds in our lives. Thank you, Jesus, that you gave your physical body as a sacrifice to make it possible. You gave your blood Lord, to wash away our sin, to take the guilt and the shame of God. So as you're standing, don't you want to take a moment and just pray in your own words, in your own way, just whatever God is stirring in your heart. Respond to Him. God, I thank you for the burdens that you placed upon our hearts. The dreams, the plans, the, the things, God, that we know you want to change and make a difference in. And just bring them before you now, Jesus. God, I thank you that for every single person in this room, your word says that you have prepared good works beforehand, that we should walk in them. Tonight, this morning, God, we just commit again to walking in the plans that you have prepared for us. Whether that is in leading or whether that is in serving, whether that is in coming alongside and lifting up, whichever capacity it may be, we just want to walk in that which you've called us to walk in. Jesus, thank you that as we do that, we can remember the cross of Christ which makes it all possible. Your body broken for our healing. Let's drink together. I eat together. And your blood which was shed, Lord, for our sin be washed away. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Christian Church. We believe that you enjoyed your time with us, establishing God's kingdom and His glory in your life. For more info, call us on 012-362-1363. Email us, pretoria at shofaronline.org. Browse our website, www.shofaronline.org. Or like us on facebook.com forward slash shofarpretoria. Pretoria.